Welcome to CPP Chat, an irregular look at what's going on in the world of C++, chatting with guests from the community. But before we approve today's legacy, John has a disclaimer to read. Thank you, Phil. To the full extent permissible by applicable law, CPP Chat declaims all warranties expressed or implied, including but not limited to implied warranties of merchantability and fitness for a particular purpose. CPP Chat does not warrant that this site, information, content, materials, products, including software, or services included on or otherwise made available to you through this site, their servers, or electronic communications sent from CPP Chat are free of viruses or other harmful components. So, uh, with that cheerful warning, uh, I want to welcome everybody here, and particularly I want to welcome uh, Claire McRae, who is our guest today. How are you, Claire? Thank you very much. I'm very well indeed and really happy to be here. All right. Um, Before we get into why we have Claire on, do we have news that we want to talk about from uh, from around the C++ world? I mean, there's a a couple of bits uh, to talk about. We mentioned very briefly last time, because it was breaking news, that the ACCU call for papers, call for proposals had, had started, and that closes on the 24th, sorry, 25th of October. So by the time this comes out, you've probably got very little time to, to get your talk in. So um, you, sh- you should get moving on that. Okay. Uh, I'm not, not sure if we mentioned before as well that CPPP have announced their dates. That's the, the Paris conference. Okay. That's going to be on June the 22nd to 23rd. Uh, thank you, Claire, for letting us know about that. Okay. Uh, very good. There is also, maybe we'll put this in the notes, um, there is on the isocpp.org uh, in the wiki page, there's a tracking of all conferences keeping up, and I think it even tracks uh, deadlines for submissions. Uh, I know you've spoken at ACCU, Phil. I, yeah. I assume you have as well, Claire? No, I haven't. Oh. I've attended it a number of times. In your backyard? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very new to conference speaking. I see. Was was CPPCon your first? Um, it was my third C++ one, but they've all been this year. So tell us about this. Which one did you start with? Um, I started at Phil's, actually, in February this year. As far as C++ is concerned, I did speak at a continuous delivery conference the year before, but um, Phil is probably a bit fed up of me thanking him for giving me the opportunity to get started and I got bitten by the bug and enjoyed it so much. And As an organiser, I will say your ability to be tired of this is... <laughs> 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 that's right, that's right. Um, Definitely a success story. So, yeah, so then um, I got invited to speak at CPPP in Paris this summer and then um, CPPCon was the third. Uh, th- there, were, there were others planned now, but happy so far with three this year all right um they got till the 25th of october to submit to eccu yeah i i plan to and i'm really happy to say i'm going to be speaking at meeting c plus plus oh really so i'll see you there because i'll be there for that uh, in berlin this year well. ah yes um yeah and i have you to thank for my topic as well oh uh-oh <laughs> i don't know if you know this <laughs> I was listening. It was very close to the meeting C++ deadline. Uh And I thought, oh, I want to come up with a different topic. I don't know what. And then I was listening to a CPP chat. And you said something about, it's really strange that nobody speaks about QS or QT. And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. So I'm going to be speaking about testing QT code. So thank you. No, that's great. I I don't know why we don't break into the QT market more. Um, But 
uh, you know, um, Jens has a great deal of knowledge about cute. I think he did some cute, uh, a lot of cute stuff. So, um, so meeting C++ is probably a good home yeah. for that, but I would love to see more of that at, at CPP con as well. And by the way, I'll just substitute, uh, just slip this in here and say that I, I really like that, that uh, top you're wearing, uh, Claire, I think it's just, <laughs> just smashing looking. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, so you you uh, you spoke. Um, so you've you've had three. Did you speak on the same topic for all of them? You, uh, you spoke at CPPCon on approval tests. Yeah. So those three were definitely evolutions. Um, what I'm finding is I'm learning a lot from giving the talks and from the questions people ask. Yeah. So CPPCon was um, quite a. We've improved the code as a result of feedback. So things that in the first talk said, well, it would be nice if there was a way to do this. Now there is, which makes the talk a lot easier. Um, but the questions are getting, um, they're revealing things that I thought were obvious and so didn't explain. Mm-hmm. And then each next generation of talk um, takes up time uh, explaining um, mm-hmm. things that, when you're close to a subject, maybe they're just a bit too obvious. Uh, so this is, this is something that we are constantly helping people with when they do their abstracts. Yes. They don't realize how much jargon, they don't realize how much is assumed by them because they're yeah. close to it. And they assume, yeah. well, if you're going to this talk, you obviously know what this means. And you obviously know what this means. And this is the interesting part. And that is not the case. Um, the wonderful thing about the C++ community is we're very interested in all sorts of things. So you'll have people come to your talk who know almost nothing about what you're going to be talking about. And you really have to, that doesn't mean you have to keep everything at baby steps, Hmm. but you have to be welcoming to people who don't know the jargon and, um, and don't understand the obvious things. Right. Yes. That's something I'm particularly facing at the moment with a talk I'm doing because it's sort of part two of, uh, of two talks really. So on the one hand, I have to assume that a lot of people have seen the first part, but then a lot of people haven't. So, you know, how much of a summary of the previous talk do you, do you give? And finding that balance can be hard. And again, you know, I'm learning each time I give it, I get a set of questions and I feed that back into the next talk. So you're exactly right on that. One of the things that I discourage people from doing is when giving a talk at a conference that is kind of a follow on to the previous one, don't say it's part two, because a lot of people will assume they can't go. And you've really cut down your potential audience if the only people who can come are people who saw part one. And very often, um, you can, in fact, tailor it. So you say, well, here's what, here's what we're focusing on. If, if you want to know more about this part, you can, you can see the earlier talk. But here's what we're going to focus on here. And then you give people the background you need to dive into to that part of it. But it's, but it's, it's, it's tricky. It's always a trade-off um, of trying to keep trying to keep the talk relevant to everyone, but also have enough depth to it that that the people who are ready for that depth come away feeling like uh, they didn't just hear a brief review of stuff they already knew. I want to say also both uh, – it's, it's both gratitude and admiration, Claire, with the interview you did uh, with Kevin. I, I just thought that came off so well. It was so compelling. Uh, I, I don't know if anyone – came to the conference just because they heard that talk uh, that that interview but there might have been some because 
when I heard that interview, I realized that your subject really meant something to you. It wasn't just, well, I had to think of something to talk about so that I could justify going to the conference. It wasn't like that. It's very clear that you feel, um, I don't want to say a mission necessarily, but you feel like it's, uh, it's something you really want to say. And I, I, that really came through in the interview. And I don't want to. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. So what is it you wanted to say? <laughs> Tell us about your talk. <laughs> Um, so for the last couple of years, in my spare time, I've been working with someone called Llewellyn Falco, who is a real expert on helping teams test code better, uh, well, work better in lots of different ways. But the bit that I was interested in was the testing side of things. And at the point when I started working with him nearly two years ago now, I just answered a tweet where he was asking for help with C++ and the Google test framework. And I, I sort of very tentatively stuck my head above, above the parapet. I've just learned so much from him. I caught up with C++ as well, because I was really stuck on sort of pre-C++ 11. And then ended up as a various types of management um, uh, product um um, kind of product owner and things like that. So it was it was fun to get back into the C++. But there were so many things that I had thought were difficult to impossible to test and the approval tests framework just make, which was created by Llewellyn Falco, just makes it possible to test code that people had written off as, oh, this is legacy code, we're never going to be able to get this under test, we're never going to be able to change it. And I'm just at the stage in my career where um, I've I've got a few years to go yet, but (laughs) when I found there was something that... If it was new to me and it was helpful to me, I figured it was going to be helpful to other people as well. So the application to speak at Phil's conference in February, C++ on C, was really a toe in the waters to see if if there was any interest at all in people. Because I think Llewellyn's work is quite well known in, in Java and uh, the c .NET communities, but I hadn't heard it mentioned in C++. So. Um, and the feedback suggests that, yes, it's a surprisingly easy approach to apply for a surprisingly small volume of code, and um, it still seems to be worth sharing. So I, I think that the culture of C++ is not very uh, centered around tests, and I think that that's different for languages that are of more recent vintage. Mm. I think that, um, and I, I know I've said this on this show before, but I remember Alex Stepanov telling me when he submitted the, the, the STL proposal that there was actually an entire test suite to test what he had done. And he said it never occurred to him to submit that, and nobody ever asked for it. Mm, and I think that's, that's kind of our culture in C++ is that, you know, testing is, uh, yeah, it's something we have to do, and it's less. Um, I think we've won the minds of people. I think people know that it needs to be done and needs to be done better, but we haven't quite saturated the culture. People don't know how. It's not the first thing they think of when they sit down, okay, I'm going to start doing something. You know, we don't do what um, the test-driven development that Phil has been talking about in his classes. Mm. Yeah, It's just not second nature to us. And I, I don't think anybody's disagreeing and pushing back and saying, oh, we spend too much time doing testing as it is. I've never heard anybody say that, right? But it's but it's how do we, uh, what, are the, what are the successful strategies and how do we do it without spending all our time writing tests and not getting any feature work done. Um, and that's kind of what approval testing lets us do, right? It's, it's, it's kind of a shortcut to existing code that wasn't written the way it should have been, which 
you know, who's got code that was written the way it should have been, right? It's all code is, uh, we wish it had been done better, right? Yes. Um, but one definition of legacy code is tests is code that doesn't have unit tests. Yeah. And, um, and what you've, what you've been working on, I think with approval testing is to try to capture that code that doesn't have tests and put it under test. It's, it's in some way. Yeah. It's a way to get started in it. Um, it may be if your un- if your approval test runs sufficiently fast, it it may be good enough for code that you're not going to change um, too often to just stick with the approval test approach, uh, or depending on on how how you feel and how much further you need to go, it can be a step on the way to implementing smaller tests and adding mocks and things like that. So it's it's also very valuable if you're testing objects that have got large amounts of data that it's prohibitively time consuming to, you know, you can't yet divide something with 25 data members up into smaller classes and to write asserts or requires or whatever your test framework uses for a large number of small bits of data can be very time consuming as well. So um, it's a means to an end that is actually also quite useful in a, a fair amount of new code as well. I'm going to try a slightly different approach to a talk that's coming up uh, 21st of November, which is the Thursday. I'm going to be speaking at Phil's London C++ meetup. Is that the right name for it, Phil? C++ London, yes. C++ London. And I'm going to try a different approach. The talk there is going to be C++ testing tips and techniques, tips and tricks. Uh, so I'm just going to try and look for a broader range of well, what things do people find hard and what have I found through experience or found uh, in books and things like that. So a variety of different ways to make testing easier rather than just focusing on legacy code and approval tests. That's an experiment and it's a new talk and it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Well, one of the things you just mentioned earlier was um, whether or not your um how do I say this? Whether or not this would give you enough coverage of something that you're going to not make a lot of changes to. Mm. But part of this is is kind of circular because if I have code that I don't have tests on, I'm kind of hesitant to make any changes because yeah. it's like, let's just leave that alone. On the other hand, if I have a code that I know has good test coverage, I become fearless. Well, let me think. Let's make this little change and see if it changes performance. And I don't have to worry about it, correctness, because the tests will catch that. That's exactly right. Otherwise, I'm terrified of that. I look at this and I say, well, this was done poorly. I could go in and rewrite that. But it's not a complete refactor. So there's going to be some difference in performance. And the question is, I don't mean performance, but uh, in uh, in the way it... Um, in in um, Behavior? In, in behavior, right. And so I don't know, is that behavior difference acceptable? Is that what was intended? Um, and, and this is one of the things I've actually seen code that I look at and it's clearly got a bug in it. It's not doing what it should be doing, but I don't know who wrote code around that anticipating the bad behavior. And therefore, if I fix the bug, I've actually broken, mm. I fixed the bug in this one thing, but I broke the, the overall, right? Because I, because I don't have good test coverage. Um, but, um, I, I, I think that, um, I think that your approach of of just finding difficult things and, and surfacing those is is going to be good for the discussion. Are you also going to make a submission to ACCU? I will do. Yes, yeah, it's in my diary. Okay. <laughs> 
It's a conference I love. I've I've attended it many times. It's the conference I've been to most times, and I, uh-huh. it's a wonderful, wonderful conference. So I'd love to be able to contribute to it. Now that I feel like I've got something to say, and um, uh, with the support of others, I feel like I've acquired some confidence to say it as well. So so yeah, I definitely will. Okay. I think you now have a responsibility to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit more about this approval framework. What exactly is it? Um, it's, as I said, it's an approach that was created by Llewellyn Falco. I've tried to find it when at least 10 years ago. And if you've seen, it's, I think the easiest way to describe it is to say it's based on an idea called Golden Master. And with Golden Master, you take your software, uh, your pre-existing software, and you feed some input into it. So you have to make the minimum possible change to create some boundary so that you can just run the core code, um, feed in some data, and get some result out, some file saved out by your new test. And really, you're, you're sort of casting that in stone. You're saying... For now, this is the output. I am going to assume that 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 output is correct and set up a mechanism so that I keep on being able to feed in the same input and get the same output. That's what Golden Master is. And it's it's powerful, it's useful. And it turns out that lots of us in the C++ community have hand-rolled our own implementation of it and have found it to be fragile. If the output changes, it's really hard to inspect the differences and find out if they matter or not. It's really hard if you intend the output to change. You tend to make a small edit to the source code of your program to say, I just overwrite the output. And if you forget to revert that and you commit it, then your tests always pass forevermore because they're always (laughs) overwriting the output. There's lots of limitations for that. And so what approval tests is, is... um, uh, an approach and a vocabulary, um, uh, some really nice abstractions to represent the different stages of that process. So you've got an abstraction for naming the files so that you, you don't have to think of names to, for your output files, your golden masters. Um, it's got a, an abstraction for writing the files out so you can write out in different file formats. It's got an abstraction for comparing files. And then lastly, it's the most powerful thing is it's got an abstraction for um, when there are differences comparing um, the um, expected file, if you like, with the actual file. Um, and, and its defaults are set up so that it just behaves sensibly outside of the out of the box so with um the abstraction for comparing your expected with your actual or received and approved is its vocabulary its default is to look for one of about 10 or 15 commonly installed differencing tools and so it pops up a differencing tool and says um, on the left hand side this is what your current output looks like on the right hand side this is what your um, expected output was and if you like the change you just use the diffing tool to copy from the new back back to the approved save it commit it into version control so you're not having to modify your source code to update the output so it, it becomes really convenient really quick really safe to use um, and a lot of the challenge actually of talking about it is because 
there's so much power and flexibility built in that's useful in so many different scenarios. The challenge in talking about it is to say enough about how it works to give people a good conceptual understanding of when it's useful for them, um, but enough concrete examples of scenarios to use it in. Because if you haven't been trying out and using it in lots of different scenarios, it's really hard to appreciate just how powerful it is. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Does that make does that make any sense at all? So, yeah. And in the example you gave, you were talking about output in terms of uh, some kind of text. Mm. But I was wondering about, you know, many years ago, I'm doing a lot of Mac GUI work. And I know that we had um, an, an automated test situation where what it would do is it would capture essentially, you know, a screenshot and diff screenshots. And it, you had to be careful about things like, well, this is where the time appears. So we never care if that matches because we never expect it to match. That's never going to match. So we actually had to make kind of a template, a mask, if you will, of saying, we're looking at this. We don't care about this. Um, so will the approval test framework already have some kind of graphic diffing kind of stuff that you could you could grab a an image as your output and say, I want it to look kind of like this one, but not necessarily exactly like it? That's a good question. Um out of the box now, it doesn't have anything like that because we're really trying to minimise third-party dependencies. Uh, so it's using... And an image library would add that to yeah. it. Yeah. Right. So it's basically C++ 11 or above because the newer C++ we go to, the more we restrict sure. how much people can use it on older code. Right. Um, but actually... Over Christmas last year, when I was working on my talk for C++ on C, and I was working in a um, in the, the Qt framework at that point, and I was working on um, um, rendering molecules in um, as spheres and polyhedra and things like that, I did um, need to use it, or I chose to try and get approval tests to work mm-hmm. uh, on Qt, Im- Qt images, the Q image class. And I think I can, I mean, I was working for a company at the time and I'm not working for them now, so I can't use that code, but I think I can reproduce it and add. So so my intention for meeting C++ is to add an approval tests for C++ and Qt, which is an extra separate repository that will have the Qt dependency and will allow that kind of, um, that kind of testing. Sure. Um, uh, everything I've seen about that, though, it's doing it via images is it's pretty much a last resort because I found even I was getting different um, different images, even depending on if I was remote desktoping into my work PC or sat in front of it, which all adds to the nice story that I was able to tell at, uh, at right. C++ on C. Mm. Um, and for anyone who's listening and working in Cute, there is... Um, a commercial tool available called Squish, which is a fantastically powerful QT, cute GUI testing framework. And they provide nice alternatives to image um, snapshotting and things like that, where you're actually testing the behavior of the widgets. But uh, um, So there are other options. I presume there are some ML algorithms for diffing images that do it more than just like pixel by pixel, but actually analyse the image just to find similarities. Yeah, somebody mentioned at um, CPPCon that they'd done something like that and they were using um, Python um, CV computer vision analysis 
specifically to say how similar are these screenshots? Are they different mm. enough? So uh, I thought that was a really interesting thing to look into. Yeah, um, that could be uh, that could extend the time to run your tests. I would imagine it doesn't yes. sound like a uh, <laughs> it doesn't sound like a simple uh, text diff. It's a long way from that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you did say that you'd get some good response. You've now presented this three times at different conferences. Uh, what is the uh, you know what kind of responses are you getting in terms of both the frequency but also the range of kinds of, of responses? Well, the questions have been really interesting. Um, there's been some nice feedback where people have actually used it in practice uh-huh. um, on the include. Um, Discord and the testing channel there, probably about once a fortnight of that order, I'll get a message and someone's added me saying, oh, have a look at Claire's talk at C++ on C. So it's it's gaining some, some traction. And there was a wonderful, wonderful thing almost immediately after uh, C++ on C where someone on the C++ community watched the video um, and what I haven't said is that legacy, um, approval tests is implemented for 15 or 20 other languages and there's a really strong Python implementation. And um, so someone was able to, uh, within a working day, take some Python code that was really valuable and didn't have any tests and and get it under test and being refactored and the tests filing, finding mistakes in the refactoring all within a day. So that was really, really exciting for me. Really, really nice. Um, it's a shame you can't just look at the stats in GitHub and see the level of use, but a lot of the levels of use of it are in private companies and private source code. So there's no... Sure, sure. When I, when I look at... When I did search recently in GitHub, it was all... Um, there's a, a number of refactoring cautious, refactoring practice exercises that are just mainly set up by Emily Bache. They're really good exercises and they, by default, use approval tests. And so when you search for uses, you find sort of a thousand forks of one or a small number of refactoring. But I, I am confident it is being used in the real world in commercial environments, just in private code. So Joshua in the uh, in the chat is saying, is there any consideration on testing frameworks having this functionality built in, similar to how Jest, which is uh, Facebook's Java testing framework, has snatch snapshot testing built in? And he then says, never mind, found the documentation. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the documentation is talking about uh, integration with Catch and, and Google Test. So it's not quite built in, but the integration is there. So it is worth bringing that up. Yes. Right. In fact, just picking up that from from the catch side, I think if anything, we're, we'd like to move more the other way, uh, splitting out functionality that's being bundled into test frameworks, making them a bit more modular, because not everyone wants the same set of uh, features. And uh, particularly something like catch, which is a single header library, you don't want to be re- rebuilding all of that functionality you're not using every time. Right. So, um, yes, I think if anything, making these things play nicely together, like we do with mock frameworks as well. Uh, but keeping separate and more modular, right? Or like making possibly making an image testing as a module that would be added in, mm. uh, opt in, instead of having it built in. 
Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 Approval tests is released as a single header as well, and so we're really conscious about dependencies and compile time. Yeah. Um, but the but the but that's for the the C plus plus world. In other words, this is already implemented in a number of different languages, mm-hmm. and so there's different trade offs in how those would be implemented. Yeah, that's actually that's a really good point. So if I pull up the um, C sharp dot net approval test. And just remind myself. Um, so it's GitHub slash approvals. And there's approval test.net, but then .net.asp, .net.winforms, .net.stateprinter, um, many, many different um, .net.hibernate, .net.wf, .entityframework. And so the people involved in the .NET side of things have, for many, many individual situations and extra third-party dependencies that are widely used, they've added small extra wrappers around the core approval test functionality. So um, I think I, I'm, I don't want to suggest that we'd get anywhere near that level of coverage in the, the short term with the C++ one, but we're, we're very much driving it by when people ask for particular features. So when I was working, um, when I was employed and using approval tests, um, it was being driven by the features I needed, but but now I'm listening to, to what other people are asking for. So we've had a couple of requests for integration with the Boost test framework, so that might be one that we might add soon. So to anyone who's listening and wants functionality and finds it isn't there, please, please, please do put in GitHub pull requests or um, contact either Llewellyn or I. Um, Bonus points if you're available available to help talk to us online and explain um, explain your use because then we'll do a better job. But don't worry if that's not a possibility. Uh, but, but we respond to feedback basically. So you mentioned um, being employed in the past tense. Are you available now so that if I had some legacy application and I wanted to get it under test, that you could uh, you could come and take a look at what we've got and could work with us on that. Absolutely, and nothing would make me happier than to do that. Yeah, I, I yeah. Um, had a very satisfying, very fulfilling job for more than 31 years in one company and loved it. And then um, in June this year, I realised that I was just enjoying learning about testing, catching up on C++ and helping people work with legacy code so much that it was time to uh, take a leap into the unknown. So I've, I've set up a company and um, yeah, sort of setting up, tra- in process of setting up training modules and things like that to yeah. to help people out with this. But you could work on, I mean, you you would be willing to work on site or not necessarily physically on site, but you could work on a specific project if, Absolutely. We, if we had yes. that in mind. Yeah. Well, it's really too bad that there aren't lots and lots of legacy uh yeah. institutions out there that are under test <laughs> under tested um because i don't know where you're going to find anybody who's going to want to have you help out with that um yeah. particularly given that doing that is kind of the first step to launching moving forward you know building on yes building on code that's well tested is just is you know i've been there i've been in situations where the code isn't doesn't have good tests and you're just terrified of changing ev- anything um, and then I've also been in situations where you just feel like, ah, it doesn't matter. If it's broken, I'll know immediately. I'll run the tests, I'll know immediately, and I'll know exactly what I'm trying to fix because the tests are not only 
uh, not only there, but they're of a granularity that if, if a test fails, I'm not sitting, well, what do I do now? Yeah. You know, some, I broke something and who knows what that is. Instead, it will very clearly say this failed. And you look and you say, oh, now I see why, because yeah. it never occurred to me anybody want to do that. But now that I see, okay, yeah, it does seem to have a use case and we'll have to fix that. And once you've had that, once you've experienced that safety net that you can refactor with confidence, so refactor and find out if you accidentally broke something or add a new feature and find out if you accidentally broke something, once you've had that, it's it's actually really, really scary to be programming without it. But for people (laughs) who haven't had that safety net, it's really hard to explain just how good it feels and just how valuable it is right both to developers and to um you know management and leadership in companies and things like that yeah. so yeah. yeah i completely agree with what you said yeah it's a bit like when you first become an adult and you think back to all the uh, the things you did when you were you were a kid and think how did i ever get away with that <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> Well, I, I remember uh, being, you know, I spent many years as a contractor and looking at people's code repositories and being told, okay, this is the feature we want to add and being just terrified of starting because it's like, hmm. I don't know what this code is doing and I can make the change that I think it needs to make. And I have no idea what I'm breaking when I do that. And, and knowing that, well, it's under test. If you break it, we'll know right away. And that's the thing. I, you know, I don't. I, I can fix anything I've broken. That's not the issue. The issue is knowing that you've broken it and 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 knowing it quickly. Um, I remember. I've probably told this story before because it's so painful to me. Um, at the end of, um, very close to the end of a of a development cycle for a major product that I was working on, and and our deve- development cycle was you know eighteen months. It was a big deal. Um, I was given this bug and I looked at it and I could figure out easily how to fix it. It's like, okay, I see what's going on. The obvious change is to change this code right here. But I knew this code right here is called from lots of places and I'm scared to do it. So I punted the bug. It wasn't that serious. We could live with it, I felt. And I said, look, let's do this with the next release. And we shipped the product, blah, blah, blah. And the bug was assigned to me again the next time. But again, they didn't assign it to me early in the project. They assigned it to me late in the project. And it was like, the situation's unchanged. I don't want to change this late in the project. We are under test, under tested. We don't have the kind of test coverage that makes me confident to change this. And it, you just live in a different world when you know if you test it, I mean, if you change it and you break it, you'll know. That's, that's just delightful. I love that. I mentioned, I sympathised with that a lot. I mentioned that I'd spoken at a continuous delivery conference last year. And in that, I talked about turning around the annual release process that I'd been involved in for desktop software. The, the title is Escaping Five Decades of Monolithic Annual Releases. So it's quite, quite easily Googleable. Um, and it, it's really interesting how once you get into that stage when your release cycle is really long compared to your development cycle, how hard it is to get releases out and how hard it is to change around the culture of an organisation. Once once it's become the norm that releases are hard because we have to do lots of manual testing and we can't release more often, then people want to shoehorn more features in at the last moment, just like you were, were talking about. And 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 that 
quickly becomes um, this sort of continuing downward spiral where releases get harder and harder and harder. And it's really counterintuitive to think that the way to fix that is to release more often because that's such a scary thing to do. But I was really lucky that um, uh, I had a, a product manager who was, was supporting um, going from annual releases to releasing four times a year. And in that talk, I, I talk about the cultural changes involved and how we actually managed to get agreement for it. In some ways, it would have been nice to be able to do an update and say after a year of that, what, what else had we learned? Um, but I guess that's for me, that's also part of the motivation about talking about testing, because we we had pretty good test coverage for a lot of our lower level code. But by the time we got to some of the higher GUI levels and interactions between widgets across uh, QT widgets across large code bases, it became really, really hard to add tests for that. And. Having seen how hard it was to turn things around once we got in the process of it being too hard to test, then you're not just working with the code, you're having to work with cultural change within an organisation as well. So I'm hoping that by sharing ideas to developers about testing, that it might help people make it. It's not just improving the lives of developers, it's improving the lives of users as well. If releases are more robust, features get out sooner, you know, organisations can get feedback on features sooner. So I see that although the testing, maybe it feels like quite a localised part of development, I see it as as having quite a broad reach. And, and so I really look forward in years to come to seeing feedback from people saying they've actually managed to turn around release cycles by improving testing along the way. That's my hope. Right. I do, I do feel like, um, you know, you can, you can talk about, which we do at, at CPPCon and, and Tuples Now, we talk a lot about technical things. And we can do that without usually talking about process. But as soon as you, talk, as soon as you start talking about testing, somehow process comes into it. Because um, testing, your assumptions about testing imply certain things about process. Whereas your assumptions about uh, other technical things um, don't necessarily imply uh, process assumptions. So, since you brought up continuous delivery, I do find that that can be subject to the the local optimization problem, which is sort of the flip side to the cultural change you were talking about. So, uh, sort of springing the question on you a bit, but do you have any thoughts on that? So, the, the local optimization problem is where you um, you optimize your part of the the overall system or the or project. So, you're working really well. You can continuously deliver. Uh, every day, a few times a day, maybe, but nobody else in the organisation can, and then suddenly everything else is a bottleneck. In fact, overall, the systems can start to work uh, less optimally because you're working more optimally, unless you you treat it as a, a more of a systemic change. It's one of the uh, mm. the big problems that uh, agile uh, turnarounds often face. Have you have you encountered any of that at all? Well, I just thinking it's certainly yeah. Sorry, it's a big one to spring on you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a really interesting question. Certainly when you've got multiple teams working on different domain areas, different business areas, um, there can be a situation where one team maybe ends up with more of the responsibility for the release, actually getting the release out, and other teams are still carrying on working on new features. And that can that can set up... Um, kind of some tension between teams, I think. 
Um, hmm. I think... I think that I'd be happy with any kind of optimization in release processes, generally any kind of streamlining. And what I've seen is it's beneficial. Um, part of the challenge, though, is you streamline the easy things and then the things that are left are quite difficult. And then that requires yeah. commitment from the organisation to spend some time to improve it. Um, and it, it's really important that testing processes get run automatically and regularly as well. So um, particularly with Squish, the, the testing framework, it's really important if you, you have any any kind of high-level testing that you run it regularly because if you wait until the release process to run the tests and you're running quarterly, releasing quarterly, then you've got three months of changes that have probably broken the testing framework and uh, that's um, not a recipe for happiness. So um, it it is, I, I guess, not exactly answering your question, but it's really important after each release, after each um, increment, to try and work out what the hardest thing was and really try and make an effort mm. to improve it along the way. Well, the organisation thinks, that's great, we've got this nailed, we can release n times a year, um, we're going to generate enough feature requests to fill n times a year and not recognise that the stresses are, are building up along the way. Right, that, that's the problem. As long as you do take that holistic view and uh, retrospectives and keeping track of what's actually happening and responding to that. Yes, yeah. So in a project I worked on once, we uh, we were effectively able to release every day everything was constantly being fully tested on our continuous integration server but we'd actually only do releases once every three or four months because the rest of the organization just wasn't ready for it but you know we knew that so we it was still worthwhile for us to be in a position to do that uh, but yeah, the rest of the organization never really caught mm, up interesting so one of the things you said claire just now was that um you talked about um changes the, um, to the to the testing framework, hmm. or not changes to it, but changes that broke it, and I think that's one of the things that is kind of a frustration about test is that when tests are broken, at least in my experience, most of the times tests were broken. It was the test that needed to be changed, and it wasn't really that the test was broken initially. It was that the requirements did in fact change, and so um, we changed and said, "Well, we've been doing it this way, but now we want this to do this." And we didn't think about, well, that means we have to rewrite all those tests because the tests are expecting the old behavior. And so um, it's still worthwhile to maintain those tests. But it is a frustration that um, – and it's it's part of the reason why people, you know, ignore tests you know, or don't do it enough because it's like, well, we've, we've changed this. It's not a breaking code. It's not the code that's broken. It's the test that's broken. And now we have to figure out what's the correct way to test with the new set of requirements. And that's – um, that's a frustration. And I think part of that frustration comes from when we haven't done a good job of specifying exactly what the behavior we're expecting is. Um, in other words, when we do unit tests, I don't see that as much because generally speaking, it's not the unit we're changing. It's, it's something of having to do with integration at the higher level. We're saying, now this is what we expect mm. to happen. So for the same input, we do want to see different output. And that's broken the higher level test because the higher level test wasn't expressed in terms of requirements. It was just expressed in terms of, well, this is the result we expect to see. 
Yeah, there's, those are really good points. There's a lot to say to that. I think the number one thing I'd say is it's really important not to leave tests failing and read. That if the builds are rarely green, they they just stop serving a purpose because people don't notice the difference between 17 failing tests and 18 failing tests. So that's quite an important cultural thing is to get agreement across all teams that to um, perhaps temporarily um, suppress a, a test that's failing if it genuinely can't be fixed now, but make sure there's an issue somewhere to come back and pick it up later on. Um, that's really, really important. You very quickly lose the value of the time that was invested in tests. I once came across a, a, a series of tests that had been disabled, and I think it was unintentionally. So I think it was done temporarily. Yeah. And I contacted the person who turned them off and said, did you mean for these to all be turned off? And it's like, oh, are those still turned off? It's <laughs> like, no. Did you turn them on? How bad are we? And it's like, well, it looks like there's one test failing. It's like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> one of the beauties of uh, uh, Team City was the continuous integration system that I've had most experience of, and I'm sure it's true of the others as well, as you can chart over time the number of tests and you, the number of suppressed um, tests, disabled tests as well. And I really recommend keeping an eye on that regularly in the code that you're working on to spot situations like that. That kind of visual feedback was an unexpected benefit of having a, a commercial CI system. Since um, so, you brought it up, John, um, in Catch or Catch 2, there are two tags that you can use, uh, may fail and should fail, which are for exactly that purpose. So you can say, you know, actually record the fact that this failed, but don't make it fail the overall overall test run. So it's still green, but it still records it. So you're not actually completely disabling it. You're just suppressing the um, the failure uh, reporting. Can Can you give us an example? What's the use case on that? What is that? Well, it, it, exactly the, the case we were just talking about. There's something you, you, you can't fix right now, or you're not expecting it to work right now because there's some other feature you're waiting on down the line. But you still want to record that. I see. And you want to know when that changes. I see. So should fail, will fail if it passes, <laughs> whereas may fail, um, will always pass, but it will actually tell you if it's still failing when, when you actually run it specifically. So it allows you to write a test before knowing the code isn't in place yet. Yeah. You're writing a, code, a test that you know is going to fail in the short term. Yeah, or if you make some change, you know it's bro- breaking this thing, but it's okay for now, as long as you fix it up later. Mm-hmm. But it, you're less likely to, to forget it because it's still recording the fact that something is failing, but it's not making the overall test run fail. Does it require somebody to look at the logs of the build, though, to detect that it's still generating the output? Uh, yes, it'll only, well, I mean, it'll be in whatever report is, is being generated, but if you're only looking at the pass or failure, yeah, you won't see it. Mm. But a developer running the test would be likely to spot it, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or even in the um, uh, the, the quiet output, mm. it will say, you know, all tests passed, one failed is expected or something like that. Can I come back quickly to John's um, scenario just now? Mm. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is it's really important to treat tests as code that needs to be refactored, needs to be not repetitious, needs to be easy to maintain. So... Um, it's, it can be tempting to rush on the test and do lots of copying and pasting and things like that. And then when the intended behaviour of the code does change, it becomes much harder to um, efficiently update the test suite and spot intended changes from unintended changes. Uh, I think that's quite an important point as well. If you've cloned a whole bunch of tests 
or cloned one test in a number of ways, yeah. and then you change one thing about the output, you have to change that in all those tests, yeah. and it becomes a maintenance burden. Exactly. Whereas if you'd thought about the tests in a different way, um, essentially inheriting the test or something like that, then you could have changed it at one place. And yeah. Any way that you could avoid copying and pasting, it's worthwhile. Right, right, right. Yeah. So we don't have a lot of time left. I want to switch gears and, and pick on you in a different way. Um, uh, you said that you went uh, last year to a continuous integration yeah. conference, which is a little bit different than what I'm used to running and what Phil's running, which is kind of language-centric. So the continuous integration, I assume, was multi-language, multi-platform. Um, what, how, how was that different as a conference than the experience you've had at language-specific conferences? Because I knew, um, I, you know, I met you years ago at CPPCon and, and, and saw you at CPPCon now. So you've been, even if you weren't speaking, you've been going mm. to language conferences for a long time. So how is this yeah. continuous integration conference different than a language conference? Well, I have to admit that I felt quite a fraud going to a continuous delivery conference and talking about releasing four times a year and being excited about that because it, most of the speakers were speaking about web technologies where you can you know potentially release hundreds or thousands of times a day and your ab testing and getting business data back and stuff like that and and i really didn't think that talking about desktop software and releasing being excited about releasing four times a year was relevant but someone came up after my talk and said they were working on mainframes and so it was my talk spoke to them more than the web delivery ones so that was something this particular conference it's called the pipeline conference and really sadly it doesn't exist anymore but um it was by far the most diverse conference I've ever been to. And they did things like all of their calls for um, all of their submissions were reviewed anonymously. And the only reason I submitted to them was because uh, I knew that my review was going to be my submission was going to be reviewed anonymously. And that gave me the confidence to think that I, if I was accepted, it was would be on the basis of the talk rather than, oh, we need to improve the diversity figures and it's women. So I don't think that's, I'm sure that's not the, the kind of approach that, that you were thinking of. But for me, that, that made a huge, huge difference. And um, their conference organisers specifically directly got in touch with a range of different people, sort of networked to try and get as wide a variety of applicants as possible. So that was that was really exciting to be in within such a diverse group of people. Um, but they definitely didn't have a pipeline problem. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, that, that was that was really fun. It was a one day conference. It was in London, so it wasn't the same as traveling overseas for for five days or something like that. But um, it was it was a really exciting um, really exciting thing to do and. I think I got 40 or 50 people in the audience, which made it feel worthwhile. My top tip, though, actually, which I'll share for any other budding speakers here, is I've heard many people say that if you're going to do a talk, you should record yourself because everyone has their own little annoyances and things like that. And you really need to record a run through and see what you sound like and see what you look like and, you know, try and get some confidence. If you do that in PowerPoint, 
don't make that the last thing you do before you go on stage because PowerPoint will remember the timings and it will play back the exact timings of the slides by default that you did in your dry run. So here you are, a brand new speaker on stage being videoed for posterity and there's this ghost in the machine advancing your slides for you. <laughs> so Continuously delivering new slides. Yeah, so make sure you turn off that option in PowerPoint if you practice your talk with PowerPoints <laughs> recording on your laptop beforehand. Great tip. Well, speaking uh, speaking of speaking, uh, as I said, you had attended conferences before you were speaker. How is it different as a speaker? I mean, do you have a different point of view or is it just the same thing except you get up for a little while and you speak? That time in a conference between the start of the conference and when you speak, I think it affects different people differently. For me, um, it's hard for me to think about attending talks whilst I'm thinking about my own talk, however much I try and prepare in advance. So that um, I think that probably comes with, with practice and with more experience. So I was really grateful to CPPCon that I was on at the end of Monday. So by the end of the first day, my talk, my main talk was out of the way and then I could enjoy going to other people's talks. So that's a different experience. But the other thing is... People start conversations with you and give you feedback and ask. They, they, you have conversations which help you improve the talk, but you get you're not just helping people whilst you're giving your talk. There are plenty of opportunities. I think I probably had a dozen conversations over the remaining four days where someone said something about my talk um, or asked a question, and so that was really exciting as well. So that meant it was a more interactive conference for me. It wasn't just up to me to start conversations with other people, which is mostly what it felt like at previous conferences. So would you recommend speaking to people who, uh, who go to conferences? Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I, I think a lot of the value of going to conferences is the conversations you have with other people. I'm not the first person to say that, but I think, the th what what gave me the confidence to start speaking was to feel like I actually had a story to tell. And so if anyone is interested in speaking but doesn't know where to start, you don't have to be a world expert on anything. If you've got some some small story to tell as a as a starting point to put put a toe in the water, then uh, yeah, I'm not the mo world's most outgoing person by any stretch of the imagination. And I figure if I can do it, and there are. Lots of people in the C++ community, um, I'm sure on the CPP Slack, but definitely in includes Discord, who are really keen to share expertise and support new speakers and give them feedback and things like that. So um, I would say give it a go. And if you aren't sure and you want someone to talk to, drop me a message and I'll help as best I can. I'll put you in touch with other people. Well, um, that that's uh, yeah. No, I, I I agree completely. I know that um, for myself, I I remember a talk I gave at my company, and it was on some work that I was working on with a committee. And I looked around the room, and this is after I had been doing quite successfully some talks on C plus plus and and things that I was really passionate about. But I looked around the room as I was giving this just short little talk, and I realized that. Everyone in the room, including me, was bored by what I was saying. And it I just wasn't passionate about it. I mean, it was work I'd done and yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't C++ and I wasn't really excited about it. And I think that the key, at least for me, I mean, there may be people who really can make anything that they 
talk about sound exciting. But for me, if I'm not excited about it, it I won't sound exciting. But if I am excited about it, hmm. you know, I, I know how to make that come through. And I think that um, and and uh, so I know I know what you're talking about in terms of being also people coming up to you and being able to talk about what's going on and, and feel like you're you're initiating part of the conversation. And and, and they yeah. also want to engage with what you've said. And um, and so it's yeah, it it. It, it brings something to the conference that you that as a, as a, as an attendee alone you will miss out on. Mm. So that's kind of cool. Uh, some years ago, I went to the well, I was speaking at the Stack Overflow Dev Days conference in London on iOS development, as it happens. And so the night before the conference, um, me and the other speakers had dinner with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood. And uh, one of the things that Jeff Atwood said, I think it was during this dinner, was the only difference between. You know, everyone in the audience and the speakers up on the stage is that you're actually out there. You know, you've actually chosen to to go up and give a talk, but that that's really the only difference. So anyone can do it, but only the people that actually do it are, are the speakers. So, um, I think you put it a little bit more eloquently than that, but it was something that stuck with me. <laughs> There's, yeah, that's absolutely the case that they're not necessarily the people who are most intelligent. Not necessarily even the people who are most articulate, but they're the ones that made the commitment and said, I'm, I'm going to take the time. And it's, it is a lot of time to, to do the research, to pull it together, to think about how to, how to express it and to put yourself, put yourself out there. It's kind of scary to, to make these things and say, well, this is the best way to do this. And then to have somebody come up and say, well, actually, <laughs> I think you've completely overlooked that, you know, there's this case here. And if you did it this way, it's better. And yeah, you can look foolish. And you're putting yourself out there when you say, this is a best practice. And, and then someone else can say, I question that. Um, so it's, it's scary. But the benefit of doing it, I think, is, is worth the risk. And it's, uh, you know, one of the things that um, I learned many years ago, even before I was speaking, I, I did some tutoring in college. And I realized that explaining things to people meant I understood them better than I thought I had already. I mean, it, it, I thought I already understood it. You know, I took this class, I got an A in the class. I understand this. Yeah. But when I explained it to other people, I realized there was a whole depth that I didn't quite get until I explained it. Connections, all sorts of ways of, of expressing it um, that you, you just don't get until you explain it to someone else. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, I The approach I'm taking is not this is the best way to do it, but here's a technique that you may not have heard before. And that's a lot safer because the worst that happens is the best thing. <laughs> you learn a new technique. Someone says, what about this other technique you didn't know about? Oh, that's really useful. Thank you very much. I'll include it in my next talk. Uh, yeah. Well, I think we're at the time, aren't we? Um, we need to. We are, yes. I, I had one uh, closing thought, actually. Oh, uh, yes. Just to... to dial it back round to approval testing. So one of the things that um, you've been trying to tell us, Claire, is that approval tests are really good for legacy code, but not just for legacy code. It turns out that approval tests are really good for testing test frameworks. And so one of the, the main ways that I test catch is using approval tests, although it's my own homegrown Python scripts rather than the framework that you've, you've written since. Um, but yeah, I just want to put that out there as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Yes. Very interesting. <laughs> how how do we watch the watchers and how do we test the testers? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It is a question I get asked. That's right. Um, well, I want to uh, 
thank all the thank all the listeners and thank all the watchers and encourage you to join me in wishing everyone safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding.